Mandy Yakich from Creative Matters, and you're listening to Creative Matters On Air, where I have conversations with new and established artists from around New Zealand. I love to listen to artists' stories and learn about their creative process, and maybe you do too, which is why I've made this podcast, to inspire, inform and educate. I hope you can take away something positive and encouraging from each of these amazing stories to help you on your own creative journey. Welcome to Creative Matters, episode 26. Thank you so much for listening. Today I'm talking to Guy Dutois, a wood artist living in Kirikiri in the far north of New Zealand. Guy creates unique and bespoke fine art pieces in rare native timbers. He was born in South Africa and immigrated to New Zealand in 2015. From the first moment he put a gouge to wood, Guy understood that the wood was taking him on a journey and a new passion had been discovered. He found himself instantly enamoured and fascinated by wood turning and discovered a natural talent. This talent led him to be accepted to study at École Escolène Wood Turning School in France in 2018 as one of only 11 students in the full-time course. His fine wood art includes unique sculptures, jewellery, wood-turned art pieces and traditional wood-turned objects. Like all crafts, says Guy, wood art and wood turning is a continuous journey of learning and discovery. I am always learning more and I'm loving the journey. So welcome to Creative Matters, Guy. Thank you, Mandy. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's lovely to have you. And, uh, you know, it's been so interesting for me to do a little bit of research on basically an art form that I'm not that familiar with um, or a material, really, which is wood. So um, I can't wait to hear your story. Okay, so in 2015, you immigrated from South Africa and came to New Zealand. So um, why New Zealand? Um, as a South African there are multiple places in the world we could go to. Um, Canada is too cold for me. I'm not overly thrilled with living in the US. Ireland is too wet. Um, but New Zealand, New Zealand speaks to me. Um, it's a very similar culture, fantastically friendly people. It's the first country in the world to allow women to vote. Um, so it's a progressive society. Um, originally came here on a two-week look-and-see, rented a camper van, did a tour of the North Island, and after the third day, I said, I'm never going back. Wow. And here I am. It's home. Oh, that's amazing. And, um, you know, I, I was talking to you earlier just before we started recording, and um, you told me that you hadn't actually done any of this beautiful woodwork before you came to New Zealand, which is amazing, really, because that was only, what, six years ago that you, that you got here. Yeah, I only started this four years ago, actually. Um, I was living in Hamilton, and I always wanted to try wood turning. My, my grandfather was a sheet metal worker. He was really good with metal, but he did a bit of wood. My great-grandfather made all his own tools by hand, um, and my, my um, godfather had a lathe. So I always wanted to try it. And I joined a wood turning club in Hamilton, and I went there, and the first night, they showed me a gouge, and I just got it. I just understood. 
I, I can't explain it to you. I, I can't even explain it to myself. I just got it. And within six months, I was doing stuff. And some of the members in the club were looking at me and saying, "What have you done this before? I said, no, I just understood. Uh, I just really got it. And the thing, what I found about wood turners at the club and wherever I've been in the world, they are some of the friendliest, most generous people with their knowledge, with their time, with wood, with tools. They will give you freely. And it was amazing. It was fantastic to be in that environment. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, loved it. Mm, that sounds amazing. You found your place, didn't you, really? Yeah, I, I discovered my passion. Yeah. Um, my, my brothers and sisters are all really talented. My middle brother has a fine arts degree. My little sister is an incredibly talented painter. My other brother taught himself music. And I never, ever showed any talent for that. I was in the military for six years. I was in the police for 16 years. And now, at my ripe old age, I've opened my own gallery and I've become an artist. It's fantastic. <laughs> that is fantastic. That's so great. And did you, when you were in the military and in the police, did you ever, ever imagine in your wildest dreams that you would be living in New Zealand and, um, and making art? Living in New Zealand, maybe. Making art, never. Never even crossed my mind. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Even when I started wood turning, it didn't kind of, when I started, I didn't think of it as art. I was just learning how to turn stuff out of wood, basic utility items and bowls and things. And then when I discovered the art side of it, well, it just took off. Mm, yeah, I bet. So, um, you know, you've got a really interesting journey, um, how you sort of started then in, in 2015 and, and then you know, went to the other side of the world to France to to study. So I'm really interested to know how you got from that sort of having a go and a play and, and feeling that passion to actually going to a school like École Escalène, and um, which is, you know, not easy to get into, obviously. So how did that happen? Um, after I'd been turning for about six months, I entered the Kaurau National Woodfest and I won first place with a non-traditional piece. And a lot of the older wood turners were like, who's this guy? Um, but I just loved the idea. And I met a, a, a girl at the school who was on a working holiday visa from France. Uh, not at the school, at the club. Mm -hmm. And she had been turning in France. And she came to New Zealand specifically to meet the wood turners of New Zealand because we have some really famous wood turners in New Zealand, some really big names, the likes of Roly Munro and um, Graham Pradell and so forth. And we also lead the world when it comes to creation of lathes and tools and that kind of thing. And when I watched her turn, she was turning in a very different way to the way we were turning. And I got to speaking to her. I said to her, where did you learn this? And she told me about having attended short courses at the school in France. And then I started doing my own research, and I found that it's the only full-time wood-turning school in the world. And at that stage, I didn't really think about it because, come on, it's France, and I don't really speak French. My ancestors come from France and so on, but I didn't really think about it. But the more I turned and the more involved I became, the more it became a dream of, wow, I could do this. And I guess the universe conspired because everything in my life was just right at the time, and I was able to take 
a year off basically and go to Europe. But I applied and traditionally you have to go for an interview with the school and meet the director and the board and they want to understand why you would want to do this. They don't care about your skill level. It's all about your motivation. And so I was only the second non-French person <laughs> and non-French speaking person to be accepted. They had 25 applications that year. They only take 11 students. So I was very, very honored to go. And mm. it was amazing. Wow. That's incredible. And that's, it's really interesting. I thought that you would have had to kind of apply and be at a certain level of expertise. Not at all. We had one girl at the school um, who had never turned wood before ever. And then, and in the beginning, I was watching her and I was thinking, what? Like she has no clue. But by the end of it, she was the resident at the school and she stayed on for an extra year because it was all about the motivation. Wow. So the people yeah. applying are just people like you who are really passionate about the craft. Yeah, absolutely. So the thing is, uh, where France is different is the majority of people who went to the school either. So as an example, one guy restored old um, musical instruments and he's company paid for him to go there to learn particular skills that he needed to be able to do this. Um, some of the people applied and the French government pays for them to go to the school. Me, I had to pay my own way and the affairs and living at the school and living expenses. So yeah, I had really good motivation to do this. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> you wanted to finish it. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's so fascinating. And you know, how did you find that environment? It must have been really super motivating. It was super motivating because every couple of weeks we had a new teacher. And these are people who are literally the best in the world at what they do. So it's called the Ecole Esculen Wood Turning School. Um, and it's named after uh, Jean-Francois Esculen, who's the best wood turner in the world. Uh, at the age of 14, he, was, uh, he passed what's called the Master Craftsman status in France. But... He does artistic turning and he does these off-center eccentric turnings that you, you look at them and you can't even think that somebody made that on a lathe. So we learned from him. He developed a chuck. We spent a, a week just learning how to use that particular chuck. Some weeks we would learn from somebody who specialized in making little, little lidded boxes. Um, Natalie Grunewig taught us how to make jewelry. So... It's got nothing to do with wood turning. Well, you could make some of it on the lathe, but the majority of it had nothing to do with wood turning. Um, and just recently, I've been on a, a phase of making jewelry because it's so beautiful and it's fine and it's delicate and you just make lovely things. You would learn to do dry brushed acrylic and pyrography and carving. And so there's so much more to it than just the wood turning. Um, yeah. And as part of the... Uh, exam because there are two exams you don't just pass this course it's literally getting your trade papers in wood turning in france um and if not every year everybody passes so some people some some years some people actually don't make it um so the first week is a practical exam where they'll give you drawings and you have to make things to scale and really show that you understand the craft and the second week you have to create a unique piece of art so throughout the year, you bring these ideas to the school directors and the board, and they'll talk to you and say, yes, you can do this. No, you can't do that because you only have a week. And they're very strict. The workshop opens at 8 in the morning, shuts at 12 for lunch, opens at 1, shuts at 5. 
those are the hours. And if you can't do it in those hours, if you don't finish, you don't get any marks. Really? Wow. So you have to create this unique piece of art, and it was fantastic. I made this. It's on my website, The, the Comet of Chaos. <laughs> yes, I'm I saw with... that. That's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. People look at it, and they can't believe it's wood because it's airbrushed. So mm. that's another skill you learned was airbrushing. Mm. And there's so much in it. I'm blabbing on. No, no, it's really interesting. And um, just, you know, for the ignorant like myself in the in the wood department, <laughs> what you know, wood turning obviously is is basically using a lathe. Is mm-hmm. that right? Is is it always just using a lathe, or are there other tools for wood turning? Um, no, I guess about ninety percent of what I do starts on the lathe, um, but very little ends on the lathe because right. once I've turned the basic shapes. Or, or 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 what I want to do after that, and some of it I can do on the lathe. Some texturing happens on the lathe, and so on. But sometimes I may want to carve it. Sometimes I may want to do some pyrography on it. Sometimes I may want to paint it. So there's some stuff that you paint on the lathe, and it gives this amazing effect because the paint flies off in all directions, mm. irises and so. On. So that's good fun, except that there's always paint and ink all over the workshop and myself and the roof <laughs> and the walls. <laughs> I can imagine. Sounds fun though. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh, so um, you know, I, I guess for for um people listening, it would be nice for you to just kind of describe your practice and and the kind of work that you make. I mean, I know that, um, just from looking at your work, you can see that you have quite a few different sort of artistic genres that you work within, but always obviously with wood. But then sometimes you introduce other materials, don't you? And uh, you seem to also use lots of different techniques and lots of different tools. Um, as you said, carving pyrog- pyrography, is that right? It's a fancy word for wood burning. Yeah, I thought it was. <laughs> Sandblasting and airbrushing, um, staining and then painting, um, as well as your wood turning, obviously, and lots of other things. So could you um, just describe your wood art practice and um, then maybe we'll start talking about some particular items? Um, I guess it depends what my mood is and where my creativity goes, what I want to do. And and sometimes I get commissions as well. So if I'm not working on a particular commission, and we'll talk about commissions separately because that's it's quite special, um, sometimes I'll just make the odd bulb um, because the bulb becomes a canvas. So if I just want to have a, a canvas for something, then I'll make a bowl or a platter or a plate if I have an image that I want to put into it, I collaborate with local artists here in Kerry Kerry as an example. Um, and I take those images that are originals and I put them inside using a, a home-built diode laser. So I built my own laser. But the image has to match the grain that's inside the plate. So you don't always know what's inside the wood. And that's half of the beauty and the mystery of it. Because... I might have an idea and I'll go and rummage through my stockpile of wood looking and looking. And if I find a piece, then I'll take it to the bandsaw and I'll cut it open to see what the grain is like and if the shape is right. And then when it's on the lathe and I start turning it, then really is where you see what's going on inside that. And if it doesn't lend itself to the particular thing that I want, then I'll take it off and I'll put it to one side because I'll certainly find something else that I want to do with it now what's kind of inside that piece of wood so that's the one aspect and then the other aspect is 
if I'm just doing a, a pure art piece like a comet or a, or a trembleur or, or one of those, then I sit and I do the design first. It's very, very difficult to just throw a piece of wood on the lathe and create something that's not a plain bowl or a, or a spindle turned mug or a box or something like that. You've got to really think about it and you have to do the, the, the drawings and figure out the, the measurements and what the steps are. So I've got a book that I write and I sketch and I figure it all out and I'll wake up in the middle of the night with these, oh, yes, I know how to do this. And then I'll scratch away in the book. And then, of course, all the best laid plans of mice and men, you start doing this and it doesn't quite work out the way you want it to. Um, but that's how you learn and this comes with experience. And then depending on what I want to do, I'll carve it or I'll texture it. So that's where sandblasting comes in. Some woods lend themselves to being sandblasted, but then you must know what you want to do in advance. You can't just sandblast because you're just going to destroy the wood. Mm, so um, what are you actually doing when you're sandblasting, just taking away the, the top layer? You, well, no, you, um, you take away the softer grain. So you get the growth rings. And the, the winter rings are much harder than the summer rings. Oak, as an example, lends itself to that because you've got really thin, hard lines and then broad, soft lines. And because the grain is all wavy, when you sandblast it, these waves appear. And the effect is just astonishing. It's mm. really beautiful. Sounds beautiful. Um, yeah. And when you apply a dye over that and a wax later on, then it pops out. So I enjoy doing that. Um, I also enjoy doing pyrography and dry brushed acrylic because you transform the wood that it doesn't look like wood anymore. But I like to, for, I don't want to lose the essence of the wood because wood is so precious and, and so rare that I, I don't want it to look like plastic. I still want it to be recognized as wood. Mm. So it's a very fine balance to, okay, how much do I do before I start losing what the wood is like? Mm, that's really interesting. So yeah. the, the pyrography, you, you use a tool to burn and to make coals or just make patterns? Oh, you can, you can form and shape and carve using pyrography. So they taught us at the school, you make your own tips. So you, a particular shape that you want and you can do 3D patterns and especially dry brushed acrylic, it's layer upon layer that creates these different areas of of color and it really gives a fast, fascinating 3d effect so it's mm. really beautiful mm. um, but it takes a lot of work sometimes 60 layers of dry brushed acrylic before you really? finish yeah. so you're drying in between each layer no it's like i'll take some acrylic paint on on my brush um, i use a deer foot brush the shape works quite well and i'll brush it off i'll use a paper plate and i'll take a small dab brush it off and if i brush the brush over my skin and i can see paint then there's too much paint on it. Wow. So it's such a fine layer and your gradient of color progression is so fine. That's why I've got like 60 layers. But the effect is uh, it's, it's amazing. It's absolutely so you can see, And you can see the grain through the paint? Yep. yep. Does the paint kind of pick up some of that grain texture or pattern? It depends on what the wood is and what the pattern is. And if you've pyrographed over it, then you lose that to a point but then again, if you use the grain to your advantage, then you can see it. So the wood often dictates what you can and can't do. Mm, fascinating. Wow, yeah. there's so much more to it than you'd imagine, isn't there, really? Yeah. And, um, you know, it might be interesting to just talk about some of the actual things that, that you have made, which some of them seem incredibly complicated and um, 
you know, obviously the process is extremely precise. Um, so it was pretty fascinating for me to look at the um, the captive spheres work. Before I went to, to France, I studied and researched who the teachers were. And there's a, a, an old guy, and when I say old, he's now in his 80s, called Paul Texier. And Paul teaches the making of these captive spheres and geometrical shapes. And that's all he's done for the last 25 years. He's made these things. And if you see some of the things he makes, it's unbelievable. And the captive sphere, for those people who haven't seen it, it's a, it's a, it's a single piece of wood that starts as a ball that has to be, for, for my purposes, exactly 65 millimeters in diameter. If it's 64.5 or 65.5, it just doesn't work because of the math involved because I've um, handmade a set of tools to cut the different balls in there. And each sphere has between five and seven spheres on the inside. So people look at it and they go, where did you glue this together? No, it's just a single piece of wood with the spheres on the inside. Mm. And originally um, in France, they're called boule de canton, um, Cantonese balls, because the Chinese were doing these from jade and ivory many, many years ago. Mm. And then the French figured out how to do this in wood. And it's just beautiful. Wow, it is. It's incredible. It's actually gorgeous. And I showed my husband, I was telling you before, he's, you know, a boat builder and, and loves wood and has worked for a long time with wood. And he was just like, what the hell? Like, how did that get created? I mean, it is insane. So it's actually, it's a it's a round sphere with, with holes in it. And then through those holes, you can see the other spheres sort of within it. And each sphere is smaller than the, than the one before it kind of thing. Each moves completely independently of all the others. Yeah. So how do you make that? Are you able to tell us or is it a secret? Uh, no, there are, there are no secrets in wood turning. Um, on my website, they actually show the process. So uh, pictures are worth much more than the words. But you start with this ball and then you make the first hole. Well, you do the math around the outside edges and you mark exactly where each hole is going to be. Otherwise, they don't work. And then you start with the first hole, you drill it, and then you make, depending on how many rings on the inside, all the cuts up to the surface. And then you move the ball and you start the next one and you do that and you move the ball and the next one. But you have to be very precise. And when you do the very last ball, that cuts loose the last connections and all of the balls suddenly become loose on the inside. And they have these different balls. Um, kind of hard to explain in yeah. words. That's incredible. I'll I'll put a photo of it on the um on your blog so people can get an idea. But yeah, I mean it's hard. I can't understand how you can get the free spheres, you know, moving within the outside or moving within each other kind of thing. I mean it's just it's really hard to imagine how you can do it. Yeah, I didn't understand even how they did it until I went to the school and the yeah. When you see the pictures maybe you'll understand. Yeah, yeah, no. I've seen the pictures and yeah, it's amazing. Very interesting and um, the sort of thing that I guess you have to be, you know, have that sort of precise way of working and that quite math mathematical, you know, methodical way. So I mm. guess you have you have those sorts of works that are very, you know, you have to follow a certain structure and yep. then you have other work, I presume, that's a little bit more sort of free-flowing or sort of organic. Yes. Um, so it's interesting because – 
I have a, a background in data mining. I did a thesis in data mining. So I have a very mathematical brain and I like precision and geometry and structure. When I was at the school, the very last thing they teach you is called trembleur. It's these really fine, long, thin, delicate pieces of wood that go down to about two millimeters. And they're anywhere from 30 centimeters up to a meter in length, single piece of wood. And it takes all the skills they taught you at the school to be able to do these. And in the beginning, you tend to break so many of them and I was so frustrated with this process and I really hated it. But the more I did it, the more enamored I became with the idea because it's not just the precision of creating it. There's a design process. You have to design it so that it looks fluid, so that the different elements fit together to become a piece of art. And, and that started attracting me. And then you combine the mathematical and the precision side with this organic side of things. And mm. it's just gorgeous. Mm, they're really beautiful. Thank you. And so I, I, I'm, a lot of my work is leaning towards really fine, delicate things. Mm. Um, and the other thing that really attracts me about wood is if you take green wood, wet wood that's been freshly cut, and you turn that, you can make it really, really thin. And when you leave it to dry, it changes shape and it lends itself to this completely natural organic shape that you could never create as a human. And nature does this and voila, there you go. Yeah, that would be nice. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, does that, in that process when it's drying, does that sometimes mean that things snap or? Oh, yes, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I made a piece for... Um, Anzac Day during the first lockdown. I was inspired by that, obviously, because of my military and police background, where I'd um, hollowed out a piece of freshly cut paper birch tree. And I'd spent about 60 hours on creating the piece because I, I did pyrography on it. I did carving on it. I did dry brushed acrylic on it. I pierced it with a dental drill. I have a dental drill that runs off my compressor. And I created these poppies that rise up out of the ash. And as it dried, it's so fine that some of them broke. And in the beginning, I was quite, oh, no. And then I thought, well, hold on for a second. In war, we broke. And we lose, we lose pieces of ourselves. Um, but we also fix ourselves. So I, I fixed some of them, and some of them I left broken because it tells the story, and that's the thing as well. It's in, in creating any of my pieces, I like to tell the story. The, the, even on the website, I try and put the pictures of the journey of the piece from the raw piece of wood down to the ultimate piece so that you can see what happens and, and how it evolves to become what it is. Mm, yeah, and it's and that's, that's a nice of, way you do that. Uh, thank you. It, it's the journey, I guess, of every artist is how did you get to where we are? And and we're all on a journey going somewhere, learning something. And so if you see the journey of what happened to the tree, it was a, it was a seed that became a tree, that became a piece of wood, that became a piece of art. And in becoming that piece of art, there's a journey in itself. Mm, absolutely, yeah. And it's, um, I mean, that just going back to that vase that you were talking about with the poppies, that you made some connection with what we're going through at the moment with the pandemic pandemic and yep. COVID-19. Yeah. So what was what was the idea behind that? Well, it was at the time when we were just locked up. Um, and that Anzac Day, I'd, I'd gotten this idea and we stood our dawn parade in the road that I lived 
at our mailboxes with flashlights or candles. Um, and, you know, we're all in this together. And as the poppies rose from the ash of the battlefield, so we will rise through this COVID thing. We will make it. Um, and it might not be easy and there will be some loss and some pain, but we will make it. We're very resilient as a, as a people. And, and that was, in fact, the name of the piece. I called it Resilience because we are resilient. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And it really did have that feeling of, of the poppies rising out of the ashes from the acrylic work. Was it the dry brush technique yeah, on that one? Yeah, there's ink and dry brush acrylic on there and a couple of butterflies just to a hint of colour because out of all of this misery, there's always joy. Mm, that's right. And <laughs> your work really does bring that joy. And I think also the, the fascination for how it was created is, is a big part of it. So I'm um, just going back to the tremblers. Um, how do you actually display them? I mean, they're very delicate, aren't they? So it's not the kind of thing that you'd really want to interact with too much. Um, and, uh, they're, and they're very tall. Yeah, so <laughs> they're in glass tubes. Um, and they're so delicate that if there's a slight earth tremor, then they tremble in the glass tube and it makes this tinkling sound. Wow. Um, so that's how you display them. They're very safely stashed away in those glass tubes. When I came back from France, I bought one with the one that I made at the school because you make one, um, and I succeeded in not breaking it. And <laughs> I flew with it under my arm in a cardboard tube wrapped in um, foam. And wherever I went, because it's a long flight from France back here, yeah, mm. wherever I went through, I said to them, okay, I will handle it. I will put it in the X-ray machine. I will take it out of the X-ray machine. Nobody wow. touches this. <laughs> That's incredible. That's, it survived its journey. Yeah, which is great. It's quite symbolic in a way, isn't it? Mm, yeah. yeah. And so uh, just going back to that process, it's it's really interesting. I mean, when you actually look at the photograph of it, it's kind of got um, rounded shapes, hasn't it? And then in between those really tiny, tiny, skinny um, pieces of wood. So do you actually have just like a block of wood that's long and then you lathe your shape? Yeah, so... What you need to do is you need to find timber that has really close grain that runs really straight. Because if the grain is wavy and they're really thin pieces, it's going to snap. So you need really straight grain wood that's really dense. So I've tried this with Coriers as an example. It just doesn't work. Just it blows apart. I thought mm -hmm. I will make one from Kauri because, come on, Kauri is it's New Zealand. Not, not going to happen. I haven't Too yet soft. found a piece. Yeah, too soft. Even I, I found a really nice piece of swamp curry that was really dense because it's been under the ground for millennia, and even that just exploded. Um, I made one from Purple Heart. Your husband who built boats, you'll know all about Purple Heart. Really flexible, and one of the really experienced woodturners said to me, it's impossible, you're not going to do it. I love being told you can't do it. I made it from Purple Heart, um, but it was really hard to go from. You design the, the balls and the bells and the things in between the thin pieces so that it looks nice. And then I texture them. I made holes in one. So I had this whole contraption set up above the lathe. You drill holes in geometric patterns around it. Um, on each one of those, there's a captive ring. So you, I, I made a tool that cuts a captive ring out of it. And people look at the ring that's floating around. It's, how did you put that on there? It was made as part of the piece. And then in between are these really thin pieces that are down to two mils, and they hold the whole thing together. 
Yeah, they're so beautiful. Wow, that's interesting. So, do you uh, do you normally use a purple heart, or did you just try that and then you uh, use another wood usually? Um, I go through my stock and I look to see what will lend itself to doing that. Um, and I'm learning which of the New Zealand natives will and won't do it. Um, it also depends on the wood, and sometimes even a particular tree won't have straight enough grain. So I've got to keep looking for the right piece. Mm, wow. And it's such a lovely thing to understand when you look at your work to know, you know, all that decision making and, and sort of sampling and testing and experimenting that goes in, you know, before you even start is, is quite lovely. And, uh, you know, a lot of the wood that you use, I've actually never heard of. It's like Māori. Is it Māori? Like Māori is the hardest New Zealand native. Um, the Maori used to make their um, weapons from it because it's so hard. It holds an incredible edge. Um, so it's a lovely wood to work with. Mm. Um, recently, I've been making jewelry and I've been using matai. And it's just gorgeous. It cuts like butter. I can imagine. And also, I suppose kauri is a bit like that, isn't it? Cuts like butter. No, actually. No. <laughs> <laughs> kauri was very popular to make all kinds of things, but I have this love-hate relationship with it. It's really, because it's such a soft wood, it's a pain in the bum to finish. Really? But if you can finish it well, it displays this, what's called chatoyance. So it has the shimmer to it, which is just gorgeous. It's mm. absolutely gorgeous. And of course, swamp kauri, because it's been under the ground and pressurized and impregnated with different um, minerals and so on, is even better than that. But still... It's certainly not my favorite wood to work with. Mm. And what other woods do you work with, Guy? Ooh, I have so many. I'm very fortunate. Um, I have a lot of burr. So when a tree has an injury, it creates a burr. Um, uh, so some of it is bird's eye burr with these little dots. They are gorgeous. Um, really take sharp tools to work with them because the grain runs in every possible direction, but the end result is astonishingly beautiful. It's really, really gorgeous. They, they used a lot of burr for veneer in um, aircraft and fancy cars and that kind of thing. So it's really nice to make a piece of art that has that kind of wood in mm, it. Yeah, sounds beautiful. And uh, any other woods? Um, wow. I, I've been working with a lot of puriri, which is rock, rock, rock hard. Is it? Um, a lot of black mairi, matai, totra. Um, I'm fortunate that I've got a lot of totra burr. I've got red beech burr. Um, yeah, I've got a, I've, I have about four and a half ton of wood. <laughs> wow. And what's your process for collecting your, your material? I'm very fortunate in that I bought an old wood turner's business before I went to France. He had put all his wood up in a container 20 years ago, meaning to get back to it, never did. Then the border started eating it and he put it up on Trade Me and a mate of mine phoned me and he said, look at this. And I looked at it. I phoned the guy who was in Wellington, said to him, come up, can I come down and have a look? And he said, sure. So I got in my car the next day and I drove six and a half hours there. And when he opened the container and I saw the wood, I was just gobsmacked. And I just gave him the money and I arranged to get the container back to Hamilton and from Hamilton to Kerry Kerry. And the wood in there is gorgeous. Wow. And even the pieces that were eaten by the borer. So I've got a, a black walnut platter that I made that the borer had eaten. You could never create the patterns that nature mm, created. That's right. And so beautiful, isn't it? They're little, hey. they're little tunnels. Yes. You know, I actually, I know an artist um, 
Bobby Gray, her name is, who who has taken the shapes of the of the tunnels that the borer have made, and she's turned it into beautiful artworks. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's quite lovely. And so you just you're still working your way through that stock. I'd never work my way through all the wood I've got. And then living in in beautiful Northland, one of my neighbours phoned me a while ago. They're busy creating an avo farm up here, and they dug out a piece of swamp curry making irrigation ponds. So he phones me up. He says, would you like some swamp curry? I said, yes, please. I'll come and collect it. And he laughed at me. He said, no, you won't. I said, what do you mean? He says, I'll deliver it. And 10 minutes later, he arrives with a front-end loader and dumps an entire tree in my garden. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> That's good. It's good to never be running out of your uh, of your medium. No. Yeah, that's brilliant. And I guess you have a real connection. I mean, people um, like my husband who have worked with wood have a real affinity for it, don't they? It's it's there's something about that material. Oh, absolutely, and it's it's very precious. I don't waste any of it. So even though I have a lot of it, I keep every little offcut piece. I've got a box full of offcuts, and that's what I make my jewellery from, as an example. All the lids, or the or buttons, or all kinds of things. Wood is too precious to waste, so I use all of it. Really fine little pieces. You can make jewellery from it. Mm, that's really nice, and it's it's such a sort of um, you know sustainable thing, isn't it? In a way that you're you know reusing natural products and um, finding something for every piece, which is lovely. Yeah, it's an important for me that, that we recycle as well. When I built my gallery, I used recycled pallets. I took the wood from pallets and I built the walls from that and the shelves from that. And it gives a really nice, because I didn't finish them, it's just rough whitewashed. It looks really nice because you've got the fine wood against all of this. Mm. But it makes me happy to know that I, I probably, and I'm not exaggerating, pulled with a crowbar about 3,000 nails to get the wood nail-free so I could build a wall from it. Wow. That's devotion. <laughs> oh, well, just, it's, it's consumer society, it's too easy to burn stuff and throw it away and just get rid of stuff. We should recycle stuff. Mm, totally. And I'm going back to some of your beautiful objects, your beautiful artworks. There's um, to Hono Kirikiri, Um which was created for the 200th anniversary of the founding of Kitty Kitty. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. And that was, that's quite a beautiful piece. I know you've used two different types of wood and connected it with, the, um, with some resin, haven't you? Can you yeah. tell us about that one? So for the 200-year celebration that never happened because of COVID, um, they came to the Kitty Kitty came to a, a few of the local artists and said to us, the theme is the Kitty Kitty River that runs through us. It's 200 years since the founding of Kerry Kerry. Um, there's a whole interesting history around what happened here when the Maori and the, and the Pakia came together and create something. And I went and I looked at the map of the Kerry Kerry River and I took the actual dimensions, the actual picture of the map, of the river from the map, and I put that on a piece of wood and I started looking at that. And then I started thinking about this and I thought, oh, hold on for a second. I had this mad idea that if I took two pieces of wood and I got them to fit together with the river in between them and then filled that gap with resin to represent the river, I wonder if I could do it. And it was quite a bit of math to figure out how to do it. So I used a piece of, of black Maori to represent the um, Maori culture and I used a piece of European ash to represent the um, Pakia, the Europeans that came here, and I traced the 
shape of the river, and then I cut it carefully with the bandsaw, and then I carved it by hand, and I slid them together. And I, I can't tell you that it worked the first time. I had to do this twice before it worked. Um, and what really, really beautiful is that I managed to line up the grain of the two pieces of wood so that it kind of looks like one piece but two different colors. Mm. It wasn't easy, but the results are amazing. So it ended up being this vase with the blue of the Kerikeri River. So it's the two cultures with the Kerikeri River that runs through us all and through our lives. And at the top, it's bound together by a blue ring, which represents the ocean, which is all around us and, again, binds us together. And that's the mm. story of that vase. Yeah, I love that. And, yeah, it's it's very striking piece of work. And you know, I, when when I when I listen to you talking about that idea of of the river and the two pieces of wood, I'd imagine it to be almost like a flat thing. So I, I can't actually imagine how you make that into a three D vase. I didn't even imagine it until I tried it, um, and <laughs> because you start with this rectangular piece of wood and another rectangular piece of wood, and then you have to cut the one to match with the other one, so they literally slide together like two puzzle pieces. And then I had to carve the river in between them. And then once that was done, then only could I turn it around. And I didn't know what it would look like until I turned it because often when you turn something, um, as you curve, especially with, with um, different kinds of wood or even with resin, the shape changes. So that's why it's quite a tall, thin vase because if I made it a round thing, the river would just be fat, blobby at one side. So these are the kind of things that you need to think about when you do this. But I'm very happy with the results. Yeah, it's very beautiful. I love it. Thank and you. Um, and the way the grain, as you said, sort of lines up sort of through the river is lovely. And it's and it's again, it's it's so nice for people to know the story behind your work and to understand your thinking behind it. You know, it just I think sort of resonates so much more for people, doesn't it? Yeah, people come to the gallery and I put up the little storyboards for the pieces. And I love reading those and then that mm. leads to conversation and stories. Yeah. And it's really generous that you do that on your website with the process. You have photographs of, you know, the process from beginning to end, which is um, quite fascinating. Yeah, thanks. The thing is, uh, woodturners will often want to know how you did something. And like I said, there are no secrets in woodturning. People share. So I don't mind sharing my process. I don't mm. mind explaining to people how to do things and showing them my tools and so forth because – it's just it's a collaboration of ideas yeah which is great and it's that's really nice um and it's not the kind of thing i mean i might know how to do it but it doesn't mean to say many people are going to be able to actually create what you create you know it's a bit of a skill i'd say yeah there's some skill <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you have a friendship with um is it roly monroe yes, down the Rowley road monroe, yeah. yeah so how how does he fit in with your practice um, I knew about Roly from reputation um, when I first started woodturning. Roly has been woodturning for more than 40, I think 47, 48 years. He developed and designed and invented a range of woodturning tools that are the best in the world. Um, and he he doesn't even call himself woodturner. He's a, he calls himself a sculptor. So, I mean, he studied sculpting. He was a, an arts teacher and so forth. It's an inspiration to see the stuff that he creates. So I bought his tools before I went to the school in France. And then I went to the school and I took them with because I didn't know what they would have. And I got there just to find that they already had his tools. Wouldn't you know it? Oh, wow. Um, that's great. Yeah. And when I was in France, I started looking for a job in New Zealand, but specifically in Northland. I love Northland. 
And I was very fortunate to be offered a job at the local council. So I moved up to Kerry Kerry. And wouldn't you know it, five minutes from where I live, there's Rolly Monroe. Wow. We became really good friends. And his wife is an accomplished painter as well and also a sculptor. So I asked them if they would, formally asked them if they would mentor me um, because there's still so much that I could learn, especially about painting and colors. And these people have a lifetime of, of skill that they can share. And they said, yes, yeah, so it's great to have a friend and a mentor that's really close. And yeah. You know, if I'm stuck, I always phone Rolly and say, hey, what do you think about this? Well, how do I do that? And mm. yeah, that's and really, that's so really nice. nice. Yeah, and mm. often an artist's life is, is pretty um can be quite isolated. So it's lovely that you can kind of collaborate and and guide each other and you probably yeah. guide him as well, you know. Yeah, then I'm not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> and you use his tools. Oh, mostly. yes, his tools are amazing and he's designing a new tool. He's just about ready to go into production. So go input in that and I can't wait to get one because we're going to mm. do all kinds of new things. Um, I, it's also nice that Kerry Kerry and Northland, there are so many accomplished artists here. And it's yeah. really nice to meet them and to collaborate with them and to share ideas with them and just to share the passion. Yeah, absolutely. I've really noticed that about Northland. I mean, I know um, a few artists in that area and I was actually coming up to um, Coast in mm. Labour Weekend, which was unfortunately cancelled. But, yeah, um, yeah and, and they seem very sort of passionate, even through that community um, Facebook group. Yeah. You know, there, there's a lot of really passionate, supportive people, which is so nice. Well, Coast will now be on Auckland um, anniversary weekend, so we'll hopefully we see you guys all up oh, there. Okay, great. Yeah, I'll be there for sure. So, um, Guy, we, we'll start talking about, you know, your gallery and, and how you sort of sell your work and that kind of thing. But uh, is there anything else you want to say about your practice or process before we do that? Um, no, I think I've said a lot. Thank you. <laughs> You've covered a lot. It's been great. Um, okay, so as you mentioned before, you have a gallery called Guy's Gallery. Is that right? Yep. Yep. And a cool name, by the way. <laughs> and um, and was that you developed that just for the for the coast weekend? Was it? No, I always wanted the gallery. Um, there aren't very many galleries left up here. Um, COVID has made it really difficult to get your work out there as well. Mm. Um, so there's another gallery in town, Little Black Gallery, Anna Hamilton. She's great. Her and I get along really well. So I've got some of my pieces in there. I've got some pieces in the eyesight. And I had a few pieces here and there. But since COVID, how do you get your stock out there? Mm. Um, and I always wanted a gallery anyway. Um, you know, it's one of those dreams. So a year ago, I started building it and it's finished and I wanted to open it for Coast Weekend and Coast Weekend didn't happen. So I opened it anyway. Mm, that's great. And I suppose, well, you, ha you have got visitors. You are able to have visitors at the moment, yes. unlike Auckland. Yeah. yeah, which is good. So uh, how did you actually go about creating your gallery? Um, I'm fortunate in that I have a really large shed. So I took it's a six bay shed. So the one bay I've just turned into a gallery. Um, I just, he says, um, I worked really hard to create the inside of the gallery. Um, and then I drew up um, some ideas for signage and I had signs, signs made and I built my own website. I tend to do everything myself. Mm. So I built my own website and um, word of mouth and there we go. I have a gallery. Wow. And it's really nice because I reached out to some of the other artists up here Um it's not a big gallery. It's teeny. It's really small because it's like a one bay of a shed. Um, but every couple of months, I want to put an, a different artist in there. Mm. 
along with the wood stuff. And that's really nice. Mm, that's so, so at the nice. moment, yeah, I've got some photographs from Claire Gordon from Flash Gordon Photography. And I've got some paintings from um, Joan Honeyfield and some stuff from Ricky Lang. And so it's really nice to have other artists in there as well. Mm, that's lovely. It's a real sort of sense of community, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And how do you actually advertise your gallery or get people in there? Um, so the website, Facebook, doing things like this podcast with you and the blog, um, Northland Creative Arts and even the council have publicized the fact that I've got the gallery and my work. So it's slowly getting out there. Mm, that's great. And how, how do you actually run it? Do you just open it in the weekend when you're around? And you are there in the gallery or? Yeah. So what's great is because my workshop is next door, I put a, a put a glass door between the two. A lady gave away a glass door on Facebook. So I went to fetch that and trimmed it so it fits. Um, and the signs have got magnetic stickers. So if the sign says open, I'm open. If the sign says closed, I'm not open. Um, <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's good. That's a good idea. So you can be working next door and, and have the gallery. And if somebody arrives, you can pop over. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's what I did last weekend. It works quite well. I was mm. inside making some jewellery and people would come in and I'd mask up and go out and they'd scan in and there you, there you go. Mm, that's perfect. And do you ever let people come in and have a look at your your work, your actual uh, making? They can look, but they can't really come in because it's health and safety and it's an, you know, I've got a registered business, so I've got to be very wary of all the health and safety aspects. So mm. it's got the necessary signage and things up. That's why I put the glass door in so they can look through the glass and they can see what's happening. And on yeah. a hot day, I'll open one of the, the bays, um, but it's all fenced off. So people can see the inside of the workshop, but uh, don't really let people in. Mm. No, that's good. That's perfect. And um, how do you actually find selling work? I mean, you know, with a shortage of galleries, as you were saying, up, up north, do you have work in other galleries around New Zealand or is it really through moment, your website? Yeah, mostly through my website. It's, it's kind of hard selling what I do unless people physically see it. It's really difficult to show scale as well. Um, so I made this wooden apple and I put that in some of the pictures so that people can get an idea of, okay, that's how big it is because sometimes it looks really teeny and sometimes it looks huge. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if you put the apple in there, then say, ah, okay, that's what it looks like. <laughs> and at the moment I'm struggling to, sh how do you show the scale of jewelry as an example? Mm. Um, but then, Maybe on, on somebody. Yeah, well, have you seen the size of some people? It's kind of <laughs> difficult because I'm not the world's biggest man. Um, so I'd look small on me or big on somebody else. Yeah, true, true. And then the thing is, as well, um, people see my stuff and then I get commissions. So I've got a couple of commissions that I'm working on, and that's always really nice because it's it's really personal to make something for somebody. Mm, yeah, it really is. You put so much mm -hmm. of your own energy in it, don't you? Yes. Yeah, and how does that process work? Um. As long as you're not in a hurry for me to make something, I'm happy to do something for you. But we sit down and we talk about it. And I want to hear the story. I want to understand the energy and the story behind the piece that somebody wants, because that's really important. And I'll, I'll write down the story in my book of creation, and then I'll do some rough sketches, and we'll talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. What I found is you may have an idea in your head, but I can't see what's in your head. I need to really, really understand what's in your head. And the only way to do that is to get you to talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. And then I'll start drawing and sketching and you can draw and sketch and eventually we'll get to a point. And then I'll start doing some rough work and 
continuously through the process update you to make sure that we're on the same page. And so far it's worked. Mm, that's great. And do people normally come with you to you with an idea of a vase or a bowl or a platter or um, you know, the captive spheres or do they do they normally know kind of what they want roughly? Yes, mostly people know what they want. I'm working on a, a commission at the moment that I've been working on for nearly a year actually. It's a really, really, really complicated artwork um that has these off-center trees. Um, and the guy wants to use it for the cover of a book. He's writing a book on mathematics. Mm. So we've been spending a lot of time working on this. And he had this idea of these wind, windswept trees. And I've created five of the seven. I need to make two more and then a root structure. And mm, yeah, it's, it's going to be lovely. Sounds great. Yeah. And right up your alley in the, in the maths department. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that sounds really cool. Um, so how do you find actually putting yourself out there, Guy, and, and being the, the face of your of your craft? I don't mind at all. I'm not a shy person, you may have guessed. Um, I've done all kinds of things in my life. So, yeah, I love interacting with people and, and sharing the joy and the passion and, and watching them touch the pieces that I've created. And, yeah, it's good yeah. for me. And that's why I guess I'm happy for it to be called Guy's Gallery. Yeah, that's good. I love it. Yeah, and it's it's – just another dimension of, of what you're doing, isn't it, to mm. relate to people, you know, around what you're actually making. It's nice. Yep. Yeah. Very good. And so, you know, obviously you're inspired by wood and, and mathematics um, and nature, I would say. Is there anything else, you know, or is there somebody who really inspires you in the work that you make? Uh, Rowley inspires me. Um, I I. I when I visit him, I always look at his stuff. We always talk about things. Um, I learn a lot from him. And then one of the teachers at the school is a guy called Alain Melan. Um, he does these unbelievably delicate sculptures um, of wood that he turns. And when I met him, I went to visit him at, at his workshop before I went to the school. He, he describes himself. He's a real clown. He's a comic. He's a funny guy. He describes himself as a professional sander. He doesn't call himself a wood turner. But... He taught us at the school how to make your own tools and how to steam bend wood and to make these really delicate things. And that's where my Comet series came from. Um, and I really am inspired by what he does and his use of color. And then, again, going back to what Rowley does and his use of color, because they understand color. And that's where I have a lot to learn still about color and the, the different means and ways. Mm. Oh, you're doing a great job with it, though. Yeah, I, I, and it's quite unique what you're making, I think, with the wood and then the paint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Um, and do you have any advice to people starting out on their creative journey like you did? I mean, obviously you started later in life, you know, after a career in the military and, and the police, which is, you know, quite a different sort of road that you ended up turning down, I guess. Do you have any advice for people starting off? What your words have power. So, as you say it, so it shall be. Don't say things like, I dream about having a gallery. Say things like, I'm going to create a gallery. Don't say, I wish I could be a painter. Say, I'm going to be a painter. And then chase your dream. 
And no matter how hard it becomes and no matter how difficult it is and no matter how many mistakes you make, just keep going. As a, as a, as a wood artist, a wood turner, you know, those really fine things I make. If I had to get upset every time I broke one of those things, I'd just be permanently upset. Just move on and just keep going. And the more you do it, the better you get. And artists are fantastic people. And I'm not just saying that because I'm an artist. I'm saying that because the artists I meet, they're just great. And and people love the passion we have. So just mm. chase your dream. Yeah. Great advice. Thank you. All right. So uh, just kind of finishing off, I've got a few sort of quick fire questions. And if you want to expand on them, you're welcome to. But I would love to know what your favorite wood to work with is and why. Uh, French boxwood. It is the most beautiful wood to work with. It cuts like butter. It, it, you can do really fine work at it. There's this really beautiful yellow color. It's just the best wood I've ever worked with. Sounds good. Never heard of it. <laughs> it's you can only find it in France. In and France, soon, yeah. yeah. Um, which is what is your favorite work that you've made? Wow, that's a difficult question. Um, Hmm. That it's really, really hard to say. Um, I love what I did in Tohono. I love what I did in Resilience. Um, but even some of the jewelry that I've made lately is just, it's gorgeous. The interplay of different colors in wood and different textures and so on. So, I really can't say what my favorite piece is. Yeah, and I guess because you've got such a varied practice, you kind of connect with each of the the different sort of ways of working and the different artworks that you're making. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose most artists would find it hard to choose a favorite. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I could choose, actually. So that was a tough question, dealt with well. Um, What was the most satisfying piece to complete? Captospheres and Trembleur because it's really, really difficult. <laughs> it's technically really hard to make those. Yeah. Um, the Trembleur I made in Purple Heart was really satisfying because I pushed the limits. I pushed my own limits in that, in the decoration and the and and so on. What I did there, so that's really satisfying to look at that. Yeah, um, yeah, I can imagine. Um, what do you find most challenging about your work? deciding what to do next uh, there was, i have so many ideas uh so it's kind of if you go in my workshop there's always 16 pieces lying around in the middle of something mm, yeah so you like to have a few things on the go oh yes i couldn't just work on one thing no. I, I couldn't do it no yeah and then you decide how you feel on the day and what you feel like working with yeah yeah that's uh, what you've just said is actually really important for me um if I want to do really fine work, I have to be in the right mental frame to do that. If I'm going to do a trembler, I play the right music. I make sure that the dog doesn't bark. He usually sleeps in the workshop, so he's pretty cool. But if he's playing with his ball outside, then I, just, I can't. I need to be completely focused. Um, and there are sometimes there are weeks where I won't go near a piece like that because I'm just not in the space to do it. Um, and if I'm going to sit down and carve, when I made resilience as an example, I sat down one day and I painted for 10 hours nonstop. 
And I stood up from that and I thought, I didn't ever in my life imagine that I could sit and paint for 10 hours, nonstop. That's but you amazing. get into the zone. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. That's very cool. <laughs> 10 hours, that's a long time. <laughs> yeah. For painting. <laughs> um, and what is it that you love most about what you do? Um, seeing what the wood transforms into. That And wood is so tactile. So being able to hold that and, and, and share that with people. People come in and, and they pick up something and they go, oh, it's so light. Or that, that really makes me happy. Mm, beautiful. And if not wood, what would be your next choice of medium? Yeah, I have to say that wood is this. I can't imagine something that even compares to what I'm doing now. No. Um, no, it would, would have to be wood. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's in under your skin, isn't it? It's in the blood. I'd yeah, say. yeah, it's in my nose, it's in my hair, it's in my <laughs> bed, there's wood everywhere. <laughs> in your bed. Interesting. Oh, shavings, trust me. They go in my <laughs> socks, they go everywhere. <laughs> and um, when you're not working with wood, what sort of things are you up to? Um, I enjoy growing my own vegetables and going out and doing the odd hike and fishing and being outside. I'm very much an outside person. Sounds good. And you're in a good spot for that up north, far north. Oh, yeah, living yeah. in paradise north. Yeah, we love Kirikiri. It's beautiful. And, uh, Guy, what's in the future for you, do you think? Um, next year, May, is the 10-year anniversary of the school. Um, so they've invited all the students to go back there. We're all participating from different parts in the world and creating a giant art piece. So that's definitely in the future. And then hopefully this COVID stuff comes to an end and I can start exploring, doing more collaborations and getting my art into other galleries. Yeah, sounds good. And I imagine you'll be doing this till the day you die. I've, I hope they find me dead at my lays in a yeah. pile of shavings. Sounds good. <laughs> That's a good visual. Uh, well, it's been lovely to meet you, Guy. And, you know, with my husband and his sort of connection to wood, my grandfather also was a wood turner and um, made beautiful easels, not with, the, not with the lathe, obviously, but made beautiful painting easels and then lots of bowls and spatulas and stuff like that. And I have vivid memories when I was a child of being out in his um, his garage watching him make things with wood so you know I, I have something in me I think for that and I've got some of his work as well which is lovely oh, so wonderful. you know yeah it was really interesting to look at your work and, and learn more about you and hear your story so thank you so much thank you thank you for sharing your time with me you're welcome nice to meet you